Good morning, everyone. I want to address, uh, direct your attention this morning to the cross of Christ. We've been singing about the cross. Um, before we get into the message, could we have a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace in our lives. We are so thankful, Father, that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us, that you have washed us in your blood, that you are calling us forward in Jesus Christ, that we will arrive safely in heaven. We just thank you so much for the cross this morning. Pray that you would supernaturally open our eyes to a deeper apprehension, perhaps, than ever before. We, we don't want to be satisfied, Lord, with just um, hearing a message. We ask for an encounter with you, an encounter with the living God. So I pray that the things I share, you would take by your Holy Spirit and and just fill them with your power. And we're trusting you for that, Lord. We ask that this would be a holy place. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Hallelujah. I want to focus in this morning on the fact that the cross is a wondrous cross. Last week we were singing that song, When I survey the wondrous cross, and I'd like to read the words of that hymn to you slowly as we begin, and just let yourselves meditate on these incredible words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Indeed, this cross is a wondrous cross. 
This is what Isaac Watts saw as he penned the words to this hymn about the cross of Christ. And just a little background about Isaac Watts. He wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross in preparation for a communion service in 1707, he was the eldest of nine children. He was a brilliant man. Listen to this. He learned Latin at the age of five, Greek at nine, French at 11, and Hebrew at 13. But he obviously was a passionate man because one of his early concerns about uh, hymns singing in, in uh, congregational singing in English-speaking churches was that it was like droning. Apparently, a deacon in the church would recite a uh, verse of the Psalms, and the congregation would kind of drone back, half speaking and half musically, um, what the deacon had read. Watts was considered a revolutionary producing futuristic music for his time, and for this he was considered radical. He wrote a number of hymns based solely on personal feelings, and these hymns were known as human composure. They were very controversial during his lifetime, and When I Survey the Wondrous Cross was the first hymn to be written in the first person. How appropriate that is, that the first hymn ever written in the first person is focused on the cross and what Isaac Watts saw within it. Others see mysteries and glories in the wondrous cross as well. For example, Billy Graham said, in the cross of Christ I see three things. First, a description of the depth of man's sin. Second, the overwhelming love of God. And third, the only way of salvation. Billy Graham said it straight, didn't he? Straight and clean and pure. Matthew Henry saw victory in the cross. Come and see the victories of the cross, he wrote. Christ's wounds are thy healings, his agonies thy repose, his conflicts thy conquests, his groans thy songs, his pains thine ease, his shame thy glory, his death thy life, his sufferings thy salvation. A man named Horatius Bonar saw his own responsibility in the death of Christ. He said, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in the din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. John MacArthur sees the cross as the proof of God's love. He says, the the cross is proof of both the immense love of God and the profound wickedness of sin. Calvin Miller sees the reconciliation within the cross. He said, the cross is seen as the saving act of Christ 
But even more than this, it is seen as the final place of reconciliation between God and humanity. A man named David Pryor sees it as the focal point of our faith that we never should leave it. He said, we never move on from the cross of Christ, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. And one unknown author said this, he said, the cross is the capital letter I crossed out. I wonder what you see as you survey the wondrous cross. Perhaps you see his love, perhaps you see his forgiveness, perhaps you see his deliverance or his suffering. Perhaps you see as Charles Spurgeon saw the depth of your own sin. Listen to his words from a sermon called The Death of Christ for His People. Spurgeon writes, how great must have been my sins if Christ lay down his life for me. Ah, my brethren, I will speak a little of my own experience, and in so doing, I will also be describing yours. I have seen my sins in different ways. I saw them once by the blazing light of Sinai, and oh, my spirit shrank within me, for my sins seemed exceedingly black. I saw the very hell of iniquity within my soul, and I was ready then to curse the day that I was born, that I should have such a heart, so vile and so deceitful. Yet Sinai was but a volcano, and it was hushed to silence. And then I began to play with sin again, and loved it as much as ever. I beheld another sight one day. I saw my sins by the light of heaven. I looked up and I considered the heavens the work of God's fingers. I perceived the purity of God's character written on the sunbeams. I thought I saw how black I was. Now that I see the brightness of thy holiness, my whole soul is cast down at the thought of my sinfulness and my great departure from the living God. But when I had lost the sense of the majesty of God, I lost also the consciousness of my own guilt. Then there came to me another view as I beheld God's loving kindness to me. I saw how he had dandled me upon the knee of providence, how he had carried me all my life long and had strewn my path with plenty, giving me all things richly. I looked upon my sin in the light of his grace, and I said, O sin, how base thou art! What dire ingratitude dost thou manifest against a God so profoundly kind? I thought then, surely I had seen the worst of sin when I had laid it side by side, but ah, my brethren, I had not. That sense of gratitude passed away also, and I found myself still prone to sin, and still loving it. But, oh, there came a thrice happy, yet thrice sorrowful hour. One day in my wanderings I heard a cry, a groan. Methought it was not a cry such as came from mortal lip. It had in it such unutterable depths of wondrous woe. Lo, there upon a tree all bleeding hung a man, 
I marked the misery that made his flesh all quiver on his bones. I beheld the dark clouds come rolling down from heaven like the chariots of misery. I saw them clothe his brow with blackness. Mine eyes were opened and I perceived his heart was as full of the gloom and honor of grief as the sky was full of blackness. Then I seemed to look into his soul and I saw there torrents of anguish, wells of torrent of such an awful character that mortal lips dare not sip, lest it should be burned with scalding heat. I said, who is this mighty sufferer? Why does he suffer thus? Has he been the greatest of all sinners, the basest of all blasphemers? But a voice came forth from the excellent glory, and it said, This is my beloved Son, who has taken the sinner's sin upon himself, and he must bear its penalty. O God, I thought I never saw sin till that hour, when I saw it tear Christ's glories from his head, when it seemed for a moment even to withdraw the loving kindness of God from him, when I saw him covered with his own blood and plunged into the uttermost depths of oceans of grief, then I said, Now shall I know what thou art, O sin, as never before I knew it. Though those other sights might teach me something of the dire character of evil, yet never till I saw the Savior on the tree did I understand how base a traitor man's guilt was to a man's God. Amazing words. Spurgeon saw the depth of his sin in the cross that day, and surely it's a true statement that we can only comprehend God's grace to the extent that we can comprehend our sinfulness. And those of us who have walked with Christ for 20, 30, 40 years are able to grasp both more and more. The depth of our sin is talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. How many of you remember those days being caught in the spirit of the world? Perhaps you see the cross the way Alexander McLaren sees the cross. What he sees in the cross is the proof of the love of God. Listen to a bit of his words from a a sermon called The Cross, The Proof of the Love of God. He's one of Great uh, Great Britain's most famous preachers in the late 1800s. And his text was Romans 5.8. He said, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he begins his sermon by arguing that it's not an easy thing to believe in a loving God. 
He writes, do the world's religions bear out the contention that it is so easy and natural for a man to believe in a loving God? I think not. I ask you to look at all that assemblage of beings before whom mankind has bowed down. What would you find? God's cruel, God's careless, God's capricious, God's lustful, God's mighty, God's mysterious, God's pitying with a contempt mingled with the pity. But in all the pantheons, there is not a loving God until Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ, there was no such thought, or if it were there at all, it was there as a faint hope, a germ overlaid by other conceptions. He continues, how do you know in our own happy experiences that love toward us exists in another's heart? How do you really know, he's asking, if love exists in another's heart? He says, surely it is by act. It's by action. Parenthetically, my mother always used to say to me, uh, talk is cheap, Jim. Talk is cheap. And uh, that kind of burned in, into me. It reminds me of Proverbs 20.11. It's by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself. But going on with McLaren, he wrote, The shining climax of all the gospel revelation of the love of God does not go back to Christ's gentle words, nor to, his, nor to his teaching of God as the Father. It does not point to anything that Christ says, but to the one thing that he did, and it is there, that cross that is the demonstration. You must go to the cross, he says. And then he takes Romans 5.8, and instead of using the word commendeth, he uses the word proves. For God hath proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One more paragraph. McLaren closes out with these words. And now, dear brethren, the word proves is a cold word. It's addressed to the head. The word commends or demonstrates are warmer words. These are addressed to the heart. I want your hearts to be touched and that Christ shall be not only the answer to your doubts, but the sovereign of your affections. If we read on in chapter 2 of Ephesians, we read these verses that we often read, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you see the depth of your sin. Perhaps you see the cross as the proof of God's love. Perhaps you see, as the Apostle Paul saw, the God-man who bought your freedom. I want to look at just a couple passages in Romans where Paul talks about how Christ has set us free. Romans 6, 
starting in verse uh, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, this is verse 22, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Paul also let us in on his own struggle with sin and how he was looking to Christ for that freedom. In chapter 7, starting in verse 21, he said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is the God-man who has set us free. Amen? I don't know if you think about his forgiveness. I don't know if you think about his redemption. I don't know if you think about him being your burden bearer, your intercessor. I don't know if you think about the fact that though you may still sin at times, you're free from sin, that you're free from the law of sin and death. I don't know if you think about um, the fact that he has given us eternal life, real life, abundant life. I don't know if you think about that he's purifying you, but all these things find their focus in the cross. It is the gate, the way of freedom. Perhaps you see the depth of your sin in the cross. Perhaps you see the proof of God's love. Perhaps you see the God-man who bought your freedom. Or perhaps you see what I see, and that is the one to whom I belong. I remember that I have been bought with a price, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I developed a, a little... Uh, tract, if you will, sometime back called Why I Need Jesus. And I uh, tried to come up with or think of 10 reasons why I need Jesus. And uh, let me just read them to you. Number one, because I can't believe this is all there is. See if you resonate with any of these. Number two, because I know deep down I am a hypocrite. Number three, because my ability to love is pathetic. 
Number four, because there is such beauty in nature and wonder in a child's eyes. Number five, because depression and addiction are always nipping at my heels. Number six, because of little signs that he is watching me. Number seven, because I do the very thing I don't want to do. Number eight, because the good things I have received are more than I deserve. Number nine, because this world is far too evil to not need a savior. And number ten, because I am far too evil to not need a savior. Taken together, these things mean to me that I need Jesus and I belong to him. He is my Savior. When I come to the table, to the communion table, by his grace, same for you, we are in him and he is in us and we are identified with him and he is identified with us. We become one spirit with him. His spirit is in us, and we are in him. I love that passage in uh, Matthew 12, where Jesus is teaching, he's speaking, and uh, somebody comes and says, your mother and your brothers are outside. Let me just read it to you, starting in verse 46 of Matthew 12. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. When I go to the communion table, I am also aware that I'm part of a new family. And that's a beautiful thing to me, part of the family of God. So maybe you've seen the depth of your sin, as Charles Spurgeon saw, Maybe you see the cross as the proof of God's love like McLaren saw. Maybe you see the God-man who has bought your freedom like the Apostle Paul. Or maybe like me, you see the one to whom you belong. The question is, how will you respond to this wondrous cross? Isaac Watts in the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, The last verse was his response. It was a response of total dedication. He said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. We also sang Rock of Ages this morning, which we haven't sung, I don't know in how long, but the third verse In the third verse, Augustus uh, 
top lady or top lady, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, says, simply to the cross I cling. That was his response. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And you know that we sing a song here, Oh, the Wonderful Cross, which is a a rework of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross by Chris Tomlin. And in that song, Chris Tomlin says this, that we need to draw near and bless his name. It's a, it's a response of gratitude and worship. He says, oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, all who gather here by grace, draw near and bless your name. So Isaac Watts talked about total dedication. Augustus Toplady talked about simply to the cross I cling. Chris Tomlin is exhorting us in response to grateful worship. And the Apostle Paul, I thought of his words, proclaim his death until he comes. Now that verse was about approaching uh, the Lord's Supper or Communion. But how fitting to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My prayer this morning is that we would survey that wondrous cross anew, that we would totally dedicate our lives to him. We would simply cling a little harder to the wondrous cross that we would draw near in grateful worship, and we would proclaim more fully his death until he comes. Let's sing that song together, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. Would you stand? This is our response this morning.
just remain standing. Thank you, Jim. Jim told me this week that he was going to preach on the wondrous cross. I said, Jim, we can't preach on the cross often enough. And I am grateful that we're in a church where you can't look at this pulpit without seeing the cross. You can't look at this stage without seeing the cross. My prayer is it will always be central to everything that we do here. Thank you, Jim, for that word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your love and grace so clearly demonstrated on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to meditate on the things we heard this morning. Help us to meditate on the cross. Help us to remember that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. And the cross was the instrument of that death and the instrument of our way into eternal life. We're a grateful people, Father, and we thank you for these tremendous truths. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together this morning. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the cross of our Lord and Savior, which binds us together as the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.